0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Devin Smith of Deer Park, Texas, thought he would do something really special for his children. Not just for their children, but for their friends as well. And, and so he took his yard in their neighborhood home and turned it into a sports complex. He put in tennis courts and volleyball courts and a full court basketball and the cherry on top. He put in batting cages with real batting pitching machines for his kids to, uh, to play ball with. And, and so that they could take full advantage of this little, uh, you know, sports complex that he had built, he put in commercial grade lighting so that they could play it, you know, well into the evening after the sun had set. And as you can imagine, Mr. Smith is something of a folk hero among the youth of Deer Park, Texas. He is not, however, so well liked by Lamar Atkinson, who happens to live right next door to Mr. Smith. You see, Mr. Atkinson and his wife would enjoy quiet evenings on the back patio with a cup of tea. Mr. Atkinson gets up at 4 a.m. every day to go to work. And so he goes to bed just about the time that the lights come on and the kids start playing. He says that the worst thing about the whole the whole complex, not the sight of it or anything like that, the worst thing is that the lights just flood the entire house. And all he hears from the time he lays down until he can finally drift off to sleep is the ping, ping, ping of an aluminum baseball bat hitting the ball. It drove him so, you know, insane that he finally goes over and he asks Mr. Smith, would you please tell the children, you just stop playing maybe like after dark or, you know. And Mr. Smith said, but I'm sorry, but that's when they most want to play, you know. It's keeping them out of trouble. They're off the streets. They're not involved in mischief. Think of all the good that's going on. And but Mr. Atkins said, but I can't sleep, you know. And, and so he would call the police and the police would come. And, and then he went to the city council twice and said, you know, we've got to do something about this. And the council looked into it and they said, well, We can make him lower his lights to 15 feet, because that's what the the, the code says. But beyond that, it's a private matter. He's not using it for commercial enterprise. And so he can pretty much do whatever he wants with his own property. And the Atkinsons bought a house somewhere else and decided to move away. Sometimes neighbors can be annoying, can't they? Sometimes they can be very annoying. Sometimes they can be maddening. Um, I, I picked up this correspondence this week between two neighbors. One was written by a um, a couple had just uh, had a, a baby. They lived in an apartment complex in a uh, you know a certain different level. So one was on like the first floor and the other on the second. And the couple on the first floor who had just had a baby wrote to their young neighbor above them. Just wanted to inform you, dear young neighbor. Just wanted to inform you that we have a new baby! Exclamation point. Before the baby, we didn't mind your loud music at 10 a.m. But now it's difficult to like it after being awake for five straight hours. Have a consideration on your tired neighbors. Please turn it down. Thanks, and they sign their name. Kind of cheery, kind of nice, isn't it? <laughs> well, the young neighbor above them, not so happy. Um, dear middle-aged neighbor, um, <laughs> I understand that you, capital Y-O-U, just gave birth to and are probably exhausted from the late nights. However, we have reached a dilemma. You see, at 3 a.m. every day, I am torn from my slumber by the sound of your infant crying. My window is directly above your child's room, and I have to get up at 6 a.m. most mornings to make it to class. My only mornings off are Thursdays and Fridays, and these are the mornings I play my music. This is compared to the seven days a week that your child wakes me up. (laughs) Remember, you decided to give birth, so you must deal with the consequences. The, qua- the consequences that you are, that you will be woken up the rest of your life. This is where I started to panic. I don't know about you, but bedwetting comes next, then occasional night terror, then adolescence trying to sneak out at all hours. There's no escape. You will have to deal with late nights for the rest of your life. So when your neighbor wants to play music for a half hour, two mornings a week, You'll have to direct your anger at your child, not your neighbor. (laughs) Signed, your neighbor. (laughs) And then he has a little postscript, P.S. I'm currently listening to Tyler, the creator. I'll burn you a copy if you'd like it. (laughs) I don't think they asked for it, do you? (laughs) What's the American proverb? Tall fences make for good neighbors (laughs) or something like that. (laughs) It's difficult to manage these sort of interpersonal relationships sometimes, isn't it? Between neighbors and, and people that we kind of have to live around and move around, sometimes work around. You know, I always think if only everyone would just do what I want them to do, everything would go so much smoother. Don't you agree? Then start doing what I want you to do, okay? That's, if you're agreeing, oh, you think that everyone should do what you want to do. I thought you were on my side for a moment. St. Paul writes, um, the letter to the Romans. It is his theological masterpiece. He deals with such weighty subjects as justification and sanctification, predestination, suffering, death, resurrection. I mean, it is page after page of of intricately well-thought-out theological arguments. It is the longest surviving letter of St. Paul. It's the longest letter in the New Testament. It has commanded such attention that people like like St. Augustine and Martin Luther and Karl Barth and N.T. Wright have given their lives to the study of the letter of Paul to the Romans. But I think Paul wrote this letter not so that he could breeze out a theological masterpiece. I think he wrote it for a much more mundane reason. You see, there's a church that was established in the first century in the city of Rome. The heart of the the Roman Empire, the city itself, a a pagan city, a a city that was um, filled with, uh, you know, all sorts of um, of various religious strains, none of which were compatible with Judeo-Christian thought. And the church that was established in Rome was a Jewish church. There might have been You know, an occasional Gentile. They might have been even a sizable Gentile minority. But it is wrong to think of the church in Rome as a Roman Gentile population. They were Jewish. And in this Jewish church, there were all sorts of sort of um, issues that were going on relating to the way that the Jews of of Rome related to their Roman neighbors. Jews were distinctively set apart. They were culturally distinct and, and still are in the world. And so for these Christian Jews, they still had to deal with all of the sort of heritage that they had grown up with. They had a different calendar than the Romans. They observed different days, Passover, a Festival of Weeks. They did different, they, different calendar. They didn't, they didn't worship the same gods and therefore didn't have the same calendar that the Romans had. They had all sorts of different distinctive cultural practices. They didn't allow the Romans to be part of their Jewish life, nor would they participate in the Roman world. And the most distinctive thing about the Jews was, of course, their diet. They would not eat the same foods that the Romans ate. They kept kosher. They had a distinctive diet, and these sort of things marked them out as a distinctive community. It was the way they kept their cultural identity in Rome. They lived in Rome, but they were not Romans. Not in that same way. And then Christianity comes along, and Christianity sort of bridges the gap between the Roman world and the Gentile world. It allows Gentiles to come into the church. To continue to live their life as as the way that they had, to continue to have the same diet and, and a lot of the same cultural practices they had. While there was a Jewish contingent in that church, the large majority of it, that had to sort of live with their identity and how they were going to work that out. And here's the thing. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a 55 year old Jew who has become a Christian. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the fulfillment of the scriptures, that that he is everything. It is the fulfillment of everything that Jews have been waiting for, for, you know, a thousand years. And you become a Christian. But at 55, are you going to give up everything, especially since you don't have to? You can continue to worship on Friday evenings with your community. You can continue to keep kosher. You can continue to live the same sort of, you know, cultural life that you've had before. Well, of course you're not. You're going to live in the same way and you're going to worship Jesus. But imagine you're 22. Imagine you're 22 and you're Jewish and you felt like this is annoying. that You cannot be part of a trade guild because you can't go to dinner with them. You, you can't be involved in the community because you have to remain distinctly separate. You've always wanted to sort of throw off this, this kosher diet, but you couldn't do it because your religion told you you had to. Now suddenly you're a Christian and you no longer have to keep it. And maybe you say, good, I'm done with that. And now you have the 55-year-olds and the 22-year-olds who aren't necessarily seeing eye to eye. Wait a minute here, Ezekiel or whatever. (laughs) You you have been raised in a Jewish home. I know we're Christian now, but we are still going to keep the same practices we've always kept. And you talk about the neighbors down the street. And all this sort of tension begins to build among the Jewish community. And Paul writes this letter. I think Paul writes the Roman letter to address this situation. Because chapter 14 and 15, the real climax of the letter, deal with this issue. This is what the whole thing was building up to. How do you live together when there are so many tensions going on? Take your bulletin, will you? Will you look at the uh, the lesson here with me? Paul distinguishes between the weak and the strong Christians. The weak ones, he says, and he doesn't mean this in a pejorative way. It's not It's like not you puny Christians. He, he means the weak ones, the ones who are weak in faith. Their faith will not allow them to adopt Gentile diet and calendar practices. It, it's It's a conflict for them. And Paul calls them weak. And the ones who can, he calls them strong. Now, we usually think of it the other way, don't we? We usually think, you know, the person with the lots of convictions, who won't do all the sorts of things, those are the strong Christians. Paul actually calls them weak. And so in a minute, you just got to kind of flip your head in, in, in that direction. But look what he says, the very first verse. Welcome those who are weak in faith. Not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything. The weak eat only vegetables. If you were a Jew and you could not be sure that meat was kosher... You would not eat it at all. You would simply eat vegetables. Verse 5, go down a few verses. Can you find that about in the middle there? Some judge one day better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. You see what's going on. The weak Christians, the the weak Jewish Christians are looking over and they see the strong Jewish Christians going to the buffet, throwing some lobster and some shrimp cocktail, and they've got a big ham sandwich, and they're going, oh, I can't believe this. What are you doing? Have you forgotten who you are? And the ones who are getting all this food, they're looking over at their other friends and they're saying, You morons. You unenlightened, unprogressive, ridiculous, you know. Head in the sand, morons. Why are you not embracing the full benefits of being free in Jesus Christ? Paul says, both of you are wrong. Strong people, welcome. Did you hear that very first? Welcome those who are weak in faith. It means to embrace, to, to wrap your arms around, to bring into. Welcome those who are weak in faith. Don't don't look down on them. Don't don't you know look condescendingly at them like they are stupid, like they're moron. Don't do that at all. And you who are weak, don't you dare judge those who are strong. You're not their judge. Leave it to God. That's his job, not yours. Why are you taking upon yourself the job that God has said? Look at verse three. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain. And those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. For God has welcomed them. You welcome one another because God has welcomed you all. But there's one little caveat. Back to verse five. Some judge one day better than another. Remember this? While others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. I don't think Paul is arguing for a laissez-faire sort of lifestyle. It doesn't really matter. You know, do what you want. I'll do what I want. We all do what we want. And that's just fine. That's not what he's saying. Be fully convinced. There is something that is completely unchristian about an unexamined life. That we ought to examine our lives. That we ought to take serious what we do in our behaviors and our practices. That we ought to look at them. Be fully convinced. Think this thing through. But once you've done that, turn one another over to God. Let him be the judge. Let him be the one who takes care of of final matters. See, it's sort of a complicated issue going on in Rome. Differing opinions. I don't think it's rampant immorality. I think it's the little things. That people are majoring on the minors. They're all bent out of shape about foods they eat and calendar days that are kept or not kept. And it's kind of easy, isn't it? It's kind of easy to slip into that thing where we're looking at other people. And we kind of, I always have my glasses on today. I'd I'd slide them down my nose. You ever do that? Yeah, slide them down your nose. Oh, there you go. Well done, Marie. Slide those glasses down your nose. And we sort of look at one another and, and evaluate. Get so consumed with what somebody else is doing that we sort of forget to judge what we ourselves are doing. I remember one day I, I, It was right after I first became a Christian like twenty five years ago, um, my wife and I were married we didn 't have children. We went to a Wednesday night Bible study. We could never get to a Wednesday night Bible anyway, we went to this Bible study It was at the church and, and our church had these big front glass okay so you could see out to the to the parking lot and, and a long kind of winding steps that went down to the parking lot and We were there just early. we would never be there early either, but we were there early i 'm talking to some guys you know a couple of the ushers standing in the hallway. And all of a sudden, this motorcycle pulls in, boom, which now I really would appreciate. Um, but this motorcycle pulls in, and and he doesn't park in a parking place. He pulls right up to the curb, right in the front, you know, kind of in a way. And this guy who's on it is, I mean... I think his friends called him tiny because it would have been ironic. You know, he's a really large fellow, and he's got a black leather vest and a sleeveless T-shirt. He looked like he was allergic to shaving racers, if you know what I mean, you know. And Long hair, you know, torn up blue jeans with black leather boots. Now I sort of think it would be stylish, but back then it was sort of like, wow, you know. look at. This. And he gets off the motorcycle, and he, he, he reaches into his saddlebag, and he pulls out what looks to be a brown leather Bible. We all look at each other like, "Hey, see that's the only one right here," you know. And and so this fellow walks up the steps, and you know we're all kind of hanging around to see. And he walks in, and somebody says, "Hey, welcome," or "How how are you," or something like that. And and the guy says, I found this in the road. It's Got the church's address in the front." He sounded just like that. And he held it up, and and all of a sudden, I recognized that Bible. It belonged to me. And I had placed it on the car, if I realized this, and drove off down the street and apparently fell off. And I lived miles from the church. This guy found it, and in the front of it, it said Joe Boisel was baptized at this church at 901 East Holm Road, Springfield, Ohio. The man found it, picked it up, looked in the front, found the address, drove the church, and made sure that it got back to the owner. And he turned around and he walked away and he got on his really sweet motorcycle bah, 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 and drove back off down the road. It doesn't really matter what clothes you wear. It doesn't really matter, you know, where you go to school or what your grammar is like. It doesn't really matter what sort of family you came from. It doesn't matter what sort of beverages you think are really acceptable or where you sort of like to hang out with friends. What really matters is what's on the inside. St. Augustine, who gave his life to study in the book of Romans, said this. In essentials, the church should strive for unity. On the things that really matter, we need unity. In the things that are non-essential, we should strive for liberty. Let people live the way they want to live. But in all things, in all things, we should strive for charity. We should love one another. I think that's really good advice. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.